You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Temple Grandin is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. She's the author of best-selling books on autism and animal handling. Her new book, co-written with Richard Panic, is The Autistic Brain, Thinking Across the Spectrum. Thank you for joining me, Temple. Well, it's great to be here. Temple, it strikes me that maybe as recently as 20 years ago, the title of this book might have been The Autistic Mind. And calling it the autistic brain speaks to a big difference in the way we look at autism. Well, you see, back in the old days, back in the 60s, they used to look at autism strictly as a psychological disorder. That's been totally proven to be wrong. And there's a chapter in the autistic brain on the history of the diagnosis and how every decade or so the psychiatrists kept changing the diagnosis because it's a behavioral profile. Uh, you have certain behaviors. It's not based on a diagnostic test like a genetic marker or something like that. Autism is not a, uh, a definitive uh, diagnosis like having tuberculosis. It's more of a spectrum. When does a child just being kind of geeky and nerdy become mild autism? There's no black and white dividing line. Then you get down on the other end of the spectrum of very severe autism. You may have a person that remains nonverbal and has difficulty dressing themselves. I love your history of, of autism and our understanding of autism. And I think one of the things that interested me was the way Leo Kanner first diagnosed it and the way that when you were born played a really important part with the way you were able to deal with autism. Well, when I was born, I was originally um, taken to a neurologist when I was two and a half years old, and the neurologist didn't even know what autism was. And so they checked me out for epilepsy, checked me out for deafness, and referred me to a little speech therapy school. And I started doing really intensive early intervention. But I was the kind of kid that they just put away in institutions back in the 50s because they had no language. Then you take the kid that has no speech delay, kind of a socially awkward and geeky. You know, that's now called Asperger's syndrome. Those kids, um, uh, you know, they would kind of could get go out and get good jobs and things like that because they had social rules just pounded into them. You know, we, today we don't pound in the social rules quite the same way, and I think that really hurts some of these mildly autistic individuals because to learn social rules, they have to learn it like being in a play. You just have to be taught. You have to be taught what the culture is in a foreign country, sort of like that. You have to learn it by rote and learn the lines by heart then as opposed to just intuiting them from the people around you. Well, no, you don't. I didn't even know that people had sort of little secret eye signals until I read them about in a I read about him in a book when I was 50 years old. One of the things I think that interested me was the way we see the history from Kanner to Bettelheim and the part that the part that the DSM and all its incarnations plays in the history of autism. It's not a good part, is it? Well, the thing is, it's a behavioral profile, and one of the problems with the DSM is it's used not only just for therapy, but for determining what services people get. And I don't think it was actually intended for that purpose, but that's what it's ended up. Like if you're in a school, if you've got a kid in school, and you want to get um, any kind of special educational services, you have to have a DNS diagnosis. Uh, otherwise, you don't get the services. 
And and I see, um, especially on the more milder end of the spectrum, smart kid might be really good in art or math, and nothing's being done to develop that ability in, in math, for example. You know, one of the profiles you can get is a child that's very good in math, and they don't advance them ahead in the more advanced math, and then he gets bored and he turns into a behavior problem because he should have been taking, you know, much more advanced uh, math lessons. And I'm seeing some of the milder kids getting held by, back by the diagnosis because I— they're not pushing them to learn skills like, well, how do I shake hands with people? How do I buy things in stores? How do you say please and thank you? They've got to learn these things. When I was a young child, mother would have me dress up in my Sunday school dress and serve hors d'oeuvres at her dinner parties and shake hands with the guests. That taught social skills. You really owe, uh, talk a little bit in this book about your debt to your mother in terms of teaching you to say please and thank you. And those manner skills and those skills of social interaction learned whether by rote or by intuiting from people around you, those skills really matter. Well, they do really matter because I go to conventions now and I'll see a child come up to me and doesn't know how to shake hands. The other thing is people on the spectrum tend to get fixated on their favorite subject. And when I was in elementary school, one of my favorite subjects was airplanes and kites. And, and I would ask my grandfather science questions. And, and what you want to do is take that thing that the child is fixated on and broaden it out. Okay, like airplanes. Teach reading with airplanes. Teach math with airplanes. All right, let's study a place where an airplane goes. See, I'm making an associative link back. But I'm seeing too many kids today where they're getting all fixated on their autism. You know, I'd rather have a, have a young nine-year-old come up to me and talk to me that, oh, he's uh, training dogs, or he uh, loves to read about Shakespeare, or he likes um, astronomy, you know. And, and we've got to get thinking a lot more about what happens when they grow up. When I was 13, my mother got me a sewing job. And when I was 15, I was cleaning horse stalls. When I was in college, I was doing internships. These kids have got to learn work skills. And this is where I'm seeing some real deficiencies because I see students getting through college, getting a job, but they can't keep it because they don't want to do the grunt work. Yep, every morning you do have to get up. You can't tell the boss off. This is a, a wonderful book because it offers the, its readers and the people who suffer from autism uh, a guide to how to get through life, how to deal with the practicalities. What interests me is that you're interested not so much in cures, but as in coping. Well, I don't want to get cured. In fact, if you cured autism totally, you wouldn't have any people to, to even invent stuff like radio stations. Because who do you think made the first stone spear? It wasn't the socials around the campfire, that's for sure. Now, in the autistic brain, I've got a whole section in there on tips on dealing with sensory problems, also jobs for different thinking types. You know, the visual thinkers like me can do things like industrial design, graphic design, photography, animation. Absolutely can't do math. And the ones that are good at math, computer programming, engineering. And then you got guys that are word thinkers. These kind of different groups will show up around, you know, kids that are eight, nine years old. They start showing what they're good at. And I'm getting worried with all our emphasis on, you know, um, we've got to learn mathematics, that us art people are really going to be messed up. Because you know what? The engineers need us art types. Because Steve Jobs was an artist. He wasn't an engineer. He designed the, the user face for the iPhone. But the engineers had to make it work. You see, this is where different kinds of minds need to be working together on things. One of the things that interests me, of course, is this idea of the spectrum versus essentially the corral where you kind of put people. And this comes from this idea you talk about of 
top-down diagnosis versus bottom-up research. So I'd like you to talk about the contrast Well, you there. see, uh, do you, when you think in language and you think top-down, you tend to overgeneralize. I have parents say to me, well, tell me the most important thing for autism. Well, if the child's three and he's not talking, I can say, yes, tons of early intervention. This is what you do. That's the same. But as soon as kids get older, I can't do that. They'll say, well, my 10-year-old has behavior issues in the classroom. Well, I don't know what kind of behavior issue he has. I've got to ask a whole lot more questions. And, and when you think bottom-up, you take the details and you put the details together. And that's been very useful in my work with livestock. Also, as a total visual thinker, it was obvious to me when I started working with cattle that they were afraid of a lot of visual detail that most people didn't notice, like shadows and reflections. And, and, and when I was young, I thought everybody was a visual thinker like me. So now I'm finding that they're not. But there's a tendency to overgeneralize. And you go, okay, once he has autism, that's black and white. But when you get on the milder end of the spectrum, it is a continuum. Think about temperature being a continuum. How about loudness in your headphones? That's a continuum. When are the headphones too loud? That's going to be different in different people. But it's not a black and white boundary. And that's one of the things I think that interests me is that you give us a vision of autism not just as a, a single set of symptoms or a single kind of disease with a single cause, but help us understand that it has a variety of causes well, and everything's interdependent. In the milder versions of autism, it's strictly a personality variant. There's kind of two main types. You have the fully verbal kids where the social circuits, and this has been shown in functional MRI studies, are not hooked up right. There's problems with face recognition, problems with recognizing facial expressions. You know, that's kind of universal among all the fully verbals. But now you get on the more severe end of the spectrum. You have a nonverbal uh, individual and acting very autistic, may have sensory problems so bad that the world's just a jumble. They may almost have a locked-in syndrome where you have a normal kid in there, but they can't control the body. The sensory systems are giving them a jumble. That's kind of a different kind of condition. Now, when the kids are three, the two types look the same. And I think they're also a mixtures of this. But I think we're really going to get understanding when we start to cut autism up into its component uh, parts. And, that, and, and, and we'll look at these sensory issues. One kid has sound sensitivity. Another kid has problems with fluorescent lights. You can have these sensory issues. You don't have to be autistic to have these sensory issues. You might be dyslexic and have them. Or maybe you just got a learning problem and you have them. One of the things that interests me in this book is the uh, spectrum of sensory uh, deprivation and uh, overstimulation. You talk that this is something that you were one of the first people to even address this issue, but it seems critically important to understanding. It's critically important, and why are people ignoring it? You know, um, about three or four years ago, I got this great big gigantic uh, fat book on autism. I contributed a chapter, and my chapter was the only chapter that talked about sensory issues. You know, why are a lot of the so-called experts uh, ignoring this? I think it's difficult for a lot of normal people to imagine an alternate sensory reality where sound that does not bother them would hurt the ears of somebody with autism or dyslexia, uh, where fluorescent lights flicker like a strobe light, the print jiggles on the page. But within the autism spectrum, these sensory issues are exceedingly variable. You know, one kid's got visual sensitivity, another individual may have sound sensitivity, another may have problems with scratchy clothes. And if you want to research these things and research them right, 
and find treatments for sensory issues, which can be very debilitating because they can make it impossible to withstand a normal environment. You've got to diagnose people, okay, does this person have a visual processing problem where they can't tolerate fluorescent lights? This person over here has got a sound sensitivity. We've got to divide them up into their sensory subgroups in order to study them. You can't just look at them under the broad umbrella of autism. You described somebody who who coined the term Picasso vision, and you included a, a print from Van Gogh, and it made me think when I look at all of Van Gogh's pictures, he may not have been painting exaggeratingly. He may have been painting what he actually saw. Well, they kind of, in some of the Picasso things, you get kind of a pixelated image. And in the back of your head, there are circuits for shape, color, motion, and texture. They've got to work together. That's what's called the binding problem in vision research. Scientists actually do not know how that works. They do know where the circuits are located because when strokes break them, it does very strange things to vision, like maybe knocking out color vision. Or you have stop-motion uh, coffee pouring, and that makes pouring coffee pretty difficult. And visual images breaking up. Head injuries can also uh, cause the circuits to not work right because fibers in the brain get ripped up. And I have talked to many individuals, and they describe this kind of pixelation of the visual image. And maybe a good way to kind of, so you can understand it, you know when your TV gets really messed up because the satellite dish is shaking and rain all over the satellite dish, the image is tearing and pixelating? Well, I think there's some people whose visual system does that. I do not have this problem. This is where it's very variable. People that have this problem are, usually don't think in, in photorealistic pictures the way I do. And it strikes me, one of the points you make is that the response to this can either be um, withdrawal or acting out, and that these two very, very different symptoms can have the same source of the problem. Well, that's right, because there's one person, you take them in the middle of a crowded supermarket, and they start screaming and throwing a fit, and then others where when they get into a situation like that, they just shut down all the sensory input. Because I found sometimes I could shut out noise, you know, sometimes because uh, my mother said sometimes I appeared to be deaf, even though I was not deaf. And so you can either shut it out and shut down, or you... Um, uh, you just get overloaded and start screaming. See, another problem that you have is screening out extraneous stimuli. You have to really work hard to pay attention. But again, sensory issues are on a continuum, from mild nuisances to being so debilitating that the person can't um, tolerate normal environments. And boy, I can tell you, my top priority for research is to find treatments for these sensory oversensitivities. We really don't know uh, how much information our brain actually deletes because we take in a lot. Our eyes and our ears, our five senses with which we know the world, take in a lot. But a lot of that stuff is deleted so that we can just deal with it. And I think that might not be the case it's with autism. It's hard for some people with autism. I want to emphasize these sensory issues go into other labels too. ADHD, dyslexia, all kinds of learning problems. You also get these sensory issues. But for most people, it's much easier to block out the fact that people were walking by in front of the windows. I tend to find that very distracting, and so I want to sit with my back to the windows so I don't see that, um, that distraction while we're doing the interview. And most people just ignore the fact that people are walking back and forth in the hall and looking into the studio. It's harder for me to ignore that. And now, for somebody with very severe problems, they are not able to ignore it. Oh, you mentioned that if you're in a hotel room, you have a problem if you are hearing voices from the next room. 
in the book. And I'm wondering if you have the same problem with television, voices on TV. So if, on one hand, hearing real voices from the next room disturbs you. Does television disturb you as well? Well, as long as it's voices. You mm-hmm. see, I, I orient to the voices. Street noise, I can sleep right through that. I can beat the airport. Planes go over the hotel. It doesn't bother me. But voices set off a vigilance response. I know that people down on the street are not going to come up to the 10th floor of a hotel and get me, but I think it's kind of a primitive vigilance response because one of the brain scans showed that my fear center was three times larger than normal. Now, a lot of that constant panic attacks and fear, that's controlled now with antidepressant medication. Really low dose, got to use a low dose, otherwise you're going to have insomnia and agitation. But what's happened is the fear responses are gone, but the orienting is still there. And I hear a voice out on the street under the hotel room window. I orient and I can't sleep. And I hate talking in the in the halls in hotels when I'm trying to sleep. I'm very careful not to make noise in the hotel in hotel corridors because I just hate it when other people uh, do it. But just traffic noise, I said that doesn't bother me. In the book, you talk about your constantly experimenting essentially on yourself. You're volunteering for MRIs as fast as you can practically. And I think this is so wonderful, your vision of yourself within science. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Well, and people ask me, well, why would I even spend time doing this? Well, why do people climb mountains? Why do people uh, go to the moon? It's exploring, you know, sort of exploring inner space just to get insights. And one of the things we've learned from MRI studies Okay, I have a standard problem with the face recognition and some of the social circuits, but other things that have shown up on my brain scans are not universal across autism. Let's take the expanded fear center. Not everybody labeled autism has that. When it comes to different kinds of minds, I've got a huge visual association circuit, but another person does not have that. But what tends to happen with kids that get labels, and don't just hold it to autism labels, but other labels too, uneven skills. Area of strength, an area of, of deficit. That tends to be a pattern, and there's three basic types. There's the photorealistic visual thinker, has trouble with algebra. There's the math mind, often good at music, engineering, programming, those sorts of things, and then the word thinker. And I just kind of figured out these brain types just uh, talking to people at conferences. But in the Autistic Brain book, I have um, we've, I found research that actually supports the two types of visual-spatial thinking, the uh, pictorial kind and the where you're located in space, more mathematical kind. And those studies are um, you know, presented in the book, and I was super happy to find a scientific study that validated my observations on this. It strikes me how much of a fan of science you are and how ingrained it is into the way you perceive the world. And in fact, at one point in the book, you say you don't see the, uh, the, the, your aunt's uh, sewing basket with the eye of an artist. You see it with the eye of a scientist. Well, why my aunt's sewing basket, or sorry, my mother's sewing basket? Well, this was in a test for the different kinds of minds that are, that's in the Autistic Brain book, and it was an abstract painting. And and abstract paintings just remind me of something else. And this one reminded me of a bunch of sewing stuff in it. It also reminded me of a salad at a restaurant in Fort Collins called the Charcoal Broiler. And they put wheat checks on the salad, which is really weird, and I picked them off. I don't really like them. And, and you see, I relate that abstract painting to something that it reminds me of. But it's, it's, an, it's a scientific observation. Well, it's just relation. a picture. It's right. just a picture. In fact, in the HBO movie Temple Grandin, when the word shoe is said, there's a whole bunch sequentially 
of pictures of shoes. Every thought I have is a picture. I want you to give me some keywords, and then I will tell you how my mind accesses that information. And let's have something more creative than dog, cat, house, or car, or something like that. And I don't want something I can see in this studio, like telephone. I don't want that. Manatee. Manatee. Well, I'm actually seeing trip to SeaWorld that I did, and there was a demonstration and a lecture on manatees. I'm now seeing an animal that I saw in the Australia Aquarium that's kind of similar to a manatee. I'm now seeing this green lettuce stuff. They were feeding it on a grate that looked like a gr something they took off a grill and they stuck lettuce in it. Okay, so now I'm seeing the salad I had at lunch. Okay, you see how I got from manatee to salad? And I was kind of disappointed they didn't put enough oranges and fruit on my lunch. They were kind of chintzy about it. So now I'm seeing another salad from, from Wendy's, at Wendy's apple walnut salad that's actually got a lot more goodies on it and it's a better salad. Okay, you see how I got from manatees to Wendy's salad? It's associative. It is associative. It's visually associative. I'm not a linear thinker. That's uh, because your brain is different from the rest of us. And that's interesting how you've embraced that and in this book, the way you explore it so that we understand that all our brains are different. Well, and you're saying at what point does a circuit become abnormal? Um, I have a cerebral spinal fluid in, 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 the, in my left parietal area that kind of screwed up math and sequential thinking. That would be an abnormality. Um, now, at what point on the fear center is it big enough to be abnormal? That's a continuum. Then the circuit for speak what I see. And this is brain scanning done by Walter Snyder at the University of Pittsburgh on the state-of-the-art high-definition diffusion temperature image, imaging scanner. There's only one in the whole world as good as this. HDFT. Yeah. And boy, and Walter Snyder's got the best HDFT. And... And a normal speak-what-you-see circuit is a cable bundle of white matter fibers that go from visual cortex up to the language and motor area and then pretty much stops. Now, my speak-what-you-see goes up to the language area and then spreads all over the whole brain. And that probably is what gives me a you know, keyword-indexed visual search engine. But I paid a price for that. I have less bandwidth for getting speech out. And that might explain why I have a speech delay. If you count the fibers, I have less fibers going up to the language area. So my speech teacher had to work hard on me to push me to get the speech out. Now, the thing is, in order to understand these scans more in terms of the whole autism spectrum, I mean, you have to do hundreds of scans on different people. But the thing is, even these things are a continuum. At what point was are extra branches on this circuit something abnormal? Again, there's no black and white dividing line. Where the left ventricle, yeah, that's an abnormal asymmetry. You talk, too, there are problems with these scans, particularly with head motion. Well, yes, you have to stay very, very still. And I had to lay still for an hour and a half. Walter has done some more engineering on the scanner, and it can now do a 15-minute scan. I stayed still. You see, this is the difference. I'm highly motivated. And let me tell you, it was hard to stay still. And I got to see they were showing me episodes of Big Bang Theory while I was in the scanner because this is and this is anatomical. It's not functional MRI. And I had to stay very still and not move when I laughed. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I thought was so interesting uh, about this book was the uh, the AGP, so I, the um, Autism Genetic Pro Genome Project. Could you talk about that? Well, it seems really important. The genetics thing is a really messy quagmire. Okay, scientists can go out and they can... Uh, um, you know, sequence genomes on a whole bunch of families and then find a genetic sequence that explains 5% of the cases of autism. It's not simple. 
Also, most of the genetic sequencing, and this is something people don't realize, is only done on what's called the exome or the coding DNA. That's the 1% to 2% of the genome that actually makes the person. What does the rest of the genome do? It's the operating system that tells the, the coding DNA what to do. And that was just recently uh, sequenced in the ENCODE project. And they were explaining about mathematical ways that the genome folds against each other, where the coding DNA folds up against the non-coding DNA, possibly in a mathematical pattern. I'm going, wow, we don't know how this works. And the thing is, it's not a simple genetics. You're talking about single nucleotide pairs, little tiny bits of code getting switched around. Um, it's not simple. You know, as genes, and, and I don't even want to use the term genes. I'm going to say code variations related to brain development are much more complicated than the genetics for, let's say, building a heart or lungs, which is pretty much the same in most mammals. And it's a, you know, at what point is this something an abnormality? You see, because a little bit of that, you know, geeky and nerdy can give some advantage. You know, or you can get a person that's so social that, um, yeah, there's social yak-yak, but there's not too much upstairs. Um, you know, you could make a brain to be more thinking or make a brain to be more um, social. And at what point is something abnormal? I've often wondered, is there such a thing as a totally 100% normal brain? When we really start getting into this, like, high-definition tensor imaging, it really makes you think. It, it strikes me that at some point in time, the science is going to advance where we'll all have you know, constant brain monitoring. And there might be, your cell phone might just light up and say, congratulations, Rick, today you have the only normal brain in America. Well, and the, the thing is, when you get kids where, the, where things are more extreme, then um, uh, innate abilities matter. You know, it's kind of a thing where innate ability doesn't matter. Malcolm Gladwell says, well, if you do enough practice and have enough access to the uh, teaching, Everybody could become a championship computer programmer. Let me tell you, that's not going to work with me. In 1968, Bill Gates and I had access to the exact same IBM mainframe with a teletype terminal. I took the class. I had tons of free time on it. I couldn't do it. I wanted to talk to Rax, the computer at the University of New Hampshire, but I just couldn't do it, and he could. And then I've got a visual uh, skill. You know, then you get people in the middle. Yeah, that, that things are, are much more sort of uh, you learn different things. But I'm, there's no way I'm going to learn computer programming. I went on the Udacity website, and I took one look at this, and I'm going, that's all gibberish because there's no way for me to make a photorealistic picture where the mathematics mind, and that some people labeled autism or Asperger's have that, yeah, they see the patterns in it. I'd like you to talk a little bit about Asperger's, which you say is kind of a key to bringing out autism. Well, Asperger's was added to the DSM in the early 90s, and basically that's autistic traits with no speech delay. You see, up before the early 90s, to be labeled autistic, you had to have significant speech delay. Okay, now you take that away. So now you've got people that are just kind of quirky and nerdy, sometimes with very, very, very severe sensory problems, now on the autism spectrum. And this has, this has partly to do with why the diagnosis has gone up so much. And uh, people with the Asperger's uh, label are really upset about taking it out um, and getting it switched to social communication disorder. But I think one of the reasons why the doctors did that is they're trying to cut back on the number of people they have to give services to. And I, I do not, I was not on that committee. I had no input into it, but I heard via the professional grapevine that that was the reason. You called this the, the throw them in jail diagnosis. 
well, yeah, things like oppositional defiant conduct <laughs> disorder. Um, you know, some of these kids get really defiant. And what you got to do is you got to challenge these kids. And, uh, you know, there's great free stuff online like Udacity for computer programming and math. Um, there's great uh, SketchUp uh, drawing programs and things like this where I got social interaction is through shared interests. we got to get these kids that are kind of different. I don't care what label they got. But I'm talking about fully verbal kids here. Get them involved in high school with shared interests. It could be computer science. It could be um, training dogs. It could be band, art, the school play. It could be Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. It could be hackerspace. It could be makerspace community groups where you get to do really cool things with technology. Because special interest groups were the only place where I was not teased. And, and we've got to get kids involved in these things. One of the, the goals of this book seems to be really to <clears throat> bring out it's kind of an activist book, I think, for, for the people who are in the autistic spectrum. Well, I want to see the kids that are like me succeed. And what really bothers me is I'm seeing smart 10-year-olds come from all the ones who talk about autism. Nobody's taught them how to shake hands. They don't shake hands when they come up to me at a book signing. They'll up, grab me around the neck in a really inappropriate way because nobody's taught them any manners. Uh, they haven't been taught to say please and thank you. You know, these were things that I was taught. And I want to see these kids get good jobs when they grow up. And the gray hair equivalent of that kid got a good job. I interact with them all the time. They run the maintenance shop at a meat plant. They uh, do car uh, dealer contracts. They fix computers. I've talked to journalists, radio and print that I know are on the spectrum. And well, another thing I emphasize in the Autistic Brain book, I got a whole chapter in there on learning work skills. And this needs to start 12, 13 years old. I know the paper routes are gone in, in this country, but ha let's have the kid walk Mr. Smith and Mrs. Jones' dog every day. And they got to do it every day, rain or shine. There's a discipline of work. There's also responsibility. I was proud of the fact that I took care of the horse barn. That was a responsibility. But there were parts of that job that were not fun, like carrying sawdust up the stairs uh, to bed the stalls. There was nothing fun about that. I actually hated that. But, you know, with even the best jobs, there's always grunt work. And, and then when they get to be 16 years old, let's go into the formal economy, you know, bag a few groceries, um, you know, work in a store. You know, when we got to figure out how to make things work, how can we deal with the, the sensory things? Sound sensitivity, when you can wear earplugs or headsets. But then when you're out of the noisy store, then you got to take them off. Otherwise, your ears get more sensitive. Got to be off for half the day. One of the things I think that this book suggests is that we really – those of us who don't have sound and other sens uh, sensory sensitivity issues need to understand the impact of those issues and what it's like to live in that world. All right, just imagine that your headphones were turned up three times louder than what you'd want, and you just had to deal with that all the time. Okay, that would be really, really nasty. Imagine that fluorescent lights are making a room flicker like a strobe light, like a discotheque or a nightclub. How could you work in an office? That or you read go the print and the print's uh, jiggling. Sometimes that's helped with colored glasses and pale colored paper. Um, imagine that your vision was pixelating like a bad TV. You see, then as you get into the more severe autism, where they remain nonverbal, they may be living in a sensory jumble. And Tito Macapadahe and Carly, who are two nonverbal individuals, uh, describe their 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 terrible uh, sensory situation. You know, one of the things that I think is this book speaks so uh, well about is science. Uh, you 
the whole book is rife with a prose voice of someone who is committed to science. And one of the things you say is that you, when you, you learned that you were wrong in your assumption that all autistics were like you, and you were glad about that because and then later on you say that science will or will not reinforce the validity of the findings. And I think that's a important well, insight. Well, what happened, I, when I wrote some of my earlier books, Thinking in Pictures, I thought everybody on the autism spectrum thought in pictures. And there was some actual scientific research that kind of indicated that. And then I got, then I got some reviews on Amazon.com. And then I started interviewing people at meetings a lot more closely. And that's when I kind of discovered, yes, there's definitely a word type. They don't think in pictures. And then there's this other kind of pattern mathematical type. And I came up with three kinds of minds. Now, I was super happy when, we, when I was working on the autistic brain to find scientific research to back up the visual thinkers and the mathematical thinkers. And this was done basically with, with people that were artists and another group that were engineers and scientists. You know, in this book, too, you speak of the importance of taking in as data uh, self-reporting when people talk about their own symptoms, that this isn't something that science gladly does, but you think it's really important. Well, I think that it's important to look at self-reports. And again, but you see, I'm more of a bottom-up thinker. I take the detail and, and I'll go get, let's say I was going to do a sensory study. I'm going to go get the self-reports and find out, okay, they, I'll have a questionnaire. Okay, the ones that hate fluorescent lights, they see the print jiggle on the page. They hate escalators because they can't tell when to get an on and off. They drive, they hate driving at night. Okay, that's visual processing problems. Okay, then it's just the ones that can't stand loud noise. They just can't stand being in a loud sports bar with five TVs going. And then you need to put these into groups, into study groups, based on what their sensory problem is. Because if you lump them all together with autism and you test a treatment, for example, colored glasses, which only work on maybe 10% of the people labeled autistic, uh, you're not going to find any results. And the other problem is autism is almost two kinds of disorders. You get with the fully verbal people, it is, okay, you have the social circuits are not connected upright. And then you get in the nonverbal, it's more of a sensory issue um, it, than, uh, than, than problems with the social uh, circuits. And then you get things where, they, where the uh, brain has got so many problems, the person can't even control their movement. And, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about the this end of the scale where the, the brain itself is so um, different from normal that it prevents actual thoughts from forming the language, which you call uh, meaning blind. Well, that's happened. Uh, Donna Williams has described that, where the meaning goes out of out of words. You see, I was a type of kid that when I was young, I couldn't get the speech out. If people spoke slowly to me, I could understand what they were saying. And the te my teachers would slow down and enunciate words like cup, then she'd say cup, and then she'd go cup, she'd alternate. And Donna Williams describes um, where she, where all of a sudden it just becomes blah, blah, because another kind of a kid is echolalic. They'll yak out all these scripts from their favorite TV show or their favorite videos, nice, smooth speech, but they don't know what it means. And what you've got to teach the echolalic kid is that words have meaning. And sometimes the child will start making the connection like he might sing the McDonald's commercial at dinner time because he knows that that's associated with food trying to use that to uh, communicate with. And circuits in the brain for meaning are probably not hooked up. So you've got two very different kinds of language problems there. And um, that's something that, that needs to get researched, is to look how the brain circuits for language are an echolalic kid 
that, that has smooth, good, clear speech, but it doesn't use it in a meaningful way compared to my type where I just couldn't get my words out. You said in, of the echolalic uh, children that sometimes they understand things as a series of tones as opposed to understanding the meanings of the words. And then later on you talk about the um, import of singing and music therapy, and it looks like there's a continuum there where the music can well, really help. Well, there's some kids that don't understand what the words mean, and they think the tone of language is the meaning. And you can make a lot of emotional meaning with tone of language. I mean, if I went up to my dog and I'm like, good dog, good dog, uh, with that kind of tone of voice, he's not going to respond in a very good way to that, you know, because he's responding to the tone of voice. Um, and then some kids can learn to sing before they can then talk. Singing is on separate circuits. And then another thing that really helps some kids is activities that involve rhythm and swinging, things like horseback riding. Um, you don't, don't do um, swinging horseback riding, but you're getting rhythm and balancing. And there's some kids where you put them on a swing, and, and uh, sometimes some of the sensory input, swinging, deep pressure, can help stabilize the, the nervous system. I call it taking the phone outside so you get a better connection. And again, it's very variable. So you try these things. It's not going to work on every kid. But you're talking about a simple thing. You try swinging on a swing or doing some deep pressure. If it doesn't work, you just don't use it. You know, you just uh, use this metaphor, taking the phone outside. Uh, you talked at one point in the book about downloading images, and it strikes me how much uh, technology and the computer in particular has influenced the way we see the human mind. Well, when search engines first came into being, you know, the first ones didn't work well at all. But when, when some of the really good search engines like Google came into being, I'm going, this works just like my mind in an associative manner. So it's always been very easy for me to put lots of keywords in and find things on, on Google and sometimes find obscure stuff on Google. It's associative. It's not linear. And I'm wondering if you think that by associating our minds with these kind of machines, does that maybe limit our understanding of ourselves to by virtue of the fact that you know we're looking at ourselves as machines when we should be looking at ourselves something a little bit more complicated? Well, I think we're a bit more complicated, but I mean, that's just one part of, of thinking. But uh, the way my mind works, it's like a Google for images. Now, Google for, for images puts it up like a, uh, on a table, lots of different, um, different pictures. Mine come up one image at a time. Now, if I hold an image, I could uh, make it move, or I could go into a different file. Like, for example, let's say I think about United Airlines Terminal in Chicago, and it's on a glass roof. Now, I could either start going through my files for airports, or I could start going through my files for glass structures. And then I think Biosphere in Arizona. I think a Greenhouse at Colorado State. I think um, the Crystal Palace. Okay, now I'm seeing, okay, Crystal Palace was a World's Fair. So now I've gotten into the file of 1964 World's Fair. I actually went to that, and I went on, I think, all the people wall. It was kind of cool. You know, so now I'm, like, visiting some World's Fair stuff. I'm seeing the Knoxville uh, World's Fair Tower. I'm seeing the Space Needle up in Seattle. I'm, you see, now I've gotten into that file. Okay, now I'm in the rotating restaurant uh, file. <laughs> That that sounds like fun. It sounds like it's kind of fun to be you. But that's that's how my mind works. And for certain kinds of problem solving, it really works well. You know, because I can say, yeah, I saw that problem at, 
at, at, you know, working on trying to fix things at meat plants or fix things in animal behavior. Well, there was this dog over here that did the same thing, and we did this, you see, because I can troll through my database. Now, to make this kind of thinking really work, you got to get the kid out there and fill the database up. So you got stuff in there to search. I mean, I think both of us are old enough to remember the Internet when there wasn't much on it. Mm. And, and you've got to get the kids out to read stuff. And, and uh, I've always felt as I've gotten older that my thinking has gotten better. And I had an interesting talk with John Robinson. He's got a nice book called Be Different. And he talked about, well, as I got older, I, my, my thinking got more sophisticated because I have more knowledge in the database. Uh, when it comes to being different, that's one of the things I think that's really uh, wonderful about this book is <laughs> right at the beginning of the book, you say, my brain is different. You show us a picture of how your brain is different. And your self-acceptance of that helps us as readers accept our own differences wherever we lie on and the I spectrum. And one of the things, I want to help kids to succeed. I'm seeing too many kids like me. Uh, I'm seeing sad situations where a kid that's really good in math is getting addicted to video games, and he's a recluse in the basement and collecting a Social Security check. I think that's just terrible. Now, you take the nonverbal individual, yes, they, are, they need that. You see, this is the problem with autism. Half the spectrum is going to have to live in a supervised living situation for the rest of their life. But I really relate to the kids that are more like me because I go out into the field, I go out to a cattle convention or I go to a meat plant, and there's gray hairs like me that I know that if they were young children today, they'd be diagnosed on the spectrum or with dyslexia or some other problem. And, and I'm seeing too many kids today not getting challenged enough. They aren't learning basic skills. They aren't learning work skills. Also, they're not being allowed to really advance in a specialized interest. I'm really concerned about these little math kids where you've got a third grader that's brilliant in math and they won't let them do the fourth, fifth, sixth grade high school math book. They hold them back. No, don't hold them back in math. Let them just, let them just keep on going. And I think that uh, this book, too, for you, must uh, represent a sort of the culmination of a lot of your life as an autistic, a lot of your research into autism. Um, and it brings together a lot of stuff, and in particular, your personal prose voice as a scientist, as a woman who's lived with autism. And I think this is a really interesting book just to read on that level. Well, I've always looked to science for answers. It can't give you all the answers, but there's certain answers you can rule out by, by looking at science. And I've always been interested in science. When I was a child, um, I used to go visit my grandfather. He's an MIT-trained engineer, co-inventor of the automatic pilot. And I'd say, Grandfather, why is the sky blue? Why is grass green? And he would just explain to me those things. And I always found that interesting as a child. But I'm concerned now, with all the emphasis on STEM classes and math, us people that have difficulty in math being locked out, science needs us. Because where I can really do a good job in science is looking at the methods in an experiment. You know, um, uh, did they do the methods right? I review papers for animal science journals, and I, I'll read the methods section. And okay, they got all these fancy statistics, but they didn't tell me what breed of pig they used in that experiment. And that's going to affect the results. I pick up on those things. The people at Fukushima nuclear power plant need a visual thinker like me because I would have never put the emergency generators in a non-waterproof basement. I said, how could they do that? The problem is the mathematicians don't see it. It's not stupidity. When I was young, I used to think it was stupidity. It's not stupidity. They just don't see it. But you see, I can see the water smashing in through the baby blue louvers of the generator building, instantly filling it up. 
Now I see it. Now I visualize a Japanese guy on a baby blue catwalk. This plant was painted baby blue. And he's looking down at all his emergency equipment snout underwater. And I don't know what the bad words are in Japanese, but he's saying them now because he knows that we're in so much trouble. It's just terrible. One of the things you emphasize in this book is the importance of knowing what we don't know and the limits of our science. Well, they, see, the thing is, the word-thinking mind tends to overgeneralize. You form a hypothesis, and then you jam the data into it. The way my mind works is I take the data, put the pieces together to form the whole. It's bottom-up, not top-down. And people are always asking me all the time, what's the most important thing to do for autism? Well, if a child's three and nonverbal, I can tell you. But once you get into older children and adults, I cannot answer that question. I have to get more information. It's just too overgeneralized. We'll be looking forward to more information in your next book. I've been speaking with Temple Grandin. Her new book is The Autistic Brain, Thinking Across the Spectrum. Thank you for joining me, Temple. It's great to be here. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.